0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Game in Hand. Today's episode, if you saw the thumbnail, is all about Super Mario Wonder. As in, I Super Mario Wonder why I went back on my promise not to buy any more Switch games. I have a fair amount of time into Super Mario Wonder. Uh, I am a bit astounded by Nintendo's bandwagoning that I've seen on YouTube anyways, At least what I've seen in reviews, I think it's more than just like the second time I've seen people mention that this is their game of the year, pushing, I don't know, Tears of the Kingdom out of the way. Which I think is slightly more deserving of that title, but kind of in an equal trade-off between innovation and reusing gameplay. Obligatory, let's start by saying uh, there's no story to spoil, as Bowser is still getting on. Bowser is still getting his hands on whatever Mario or whatever citizens leave out in the open, and he grabs it, and suddenly he's Bowser plus one superpowers. But leave it up to Nintendo to have Mario call up Nintendo's cutesy costume designers to remind us why blowing bubbles makes you the most feared enemy in the game. And I'm not trying to push it down. I really think that Super Mario Wonder is a solid title. You definitely need to realize that Nintendo is shaking that innovation tree as hard as it can until the leaves fall down and that tree is barren. Mostly to overcome the fact that we're still playing the same new Super Mario line of titles that kind of goes back all the way to whatever, the 3DS or maybe the Wii. It doesn't detract from the enjoyment. Certainly not in my case, but I would call out everyone shouting, THIS IS THE BEST GAME EVER! When the singing Piranha Plants jump on screen. It's really, really, really keeping me pessimistic for what people are calling their game of the year. Because it's fun, but I don't know if it's even in my top 5. Let's just straight talk about the best parts of the game. It's all about performance. It's a game that doesn't run like Potato on the Switch. I don't know why I have to harp on this, as it always seems to be the first thing that comes to mind, but it is my primary worry for a lot of Switch titles. Aside from some cute interactions with layers of lighting, foreground and background staging, uh, perspective puzzles, arena stages... This game has the physics and graphical complexity of any old, new Super Mario Bro game. I can't even remember the last game that I could compare this to that isn't just like a rehash of the Switch. Like, what is it? The, the Year of Luigi's New Super Mario? The whatever-you'll-buy-it-twice edition? When I was looking at early reviews, so many initial technical outlets like Digital Foundry were like, So, this is a Switch game. And then, this is the game that we have to compare it to that came out what feels like 10 years ago. And at first, I was a bit confused whether or not Nintendo junkies worldwide were just foaming at the mouth trying to get on the hype bandwagon. But the more I played it, the more that it felt like this was kind of just like a holiday gap filler. Like, it's the type of content that is guaranteed to fill stocking stuffers, it has a guaranteed position on your library. But I feel like this is kind of like the status quo for a game that we're going to get on end until someone stops Nintendo. Granted, you know, a, a stopgap filler game with first-party Nintendo polish is pretty nice. But, you, but I have to say, while I was playing it, at no point did I ever find the game overly difficult. Or, I mean, necessarily earning the praise that I saw shouted over the internet. So, uh, joining the fight are Mario's speed dial companions, Luigi Peach and Daisy, for some reason, uh, followed by two Toads that are not the original Red Toad, uh, and Toadette. But there are four Yoshis that do include a Red Yoshi, but for some reason we couldn't get a Red Toad. And then, of course, you know, everyone's favorite new character, Nabbit, the Bandit. Yoshi and Nabbits are a bit interesting, as they do have some safety interactions that made me think that those were the characters meant for the people you have to play with when mom tells you to let your little brother or sister or cousin play with you. But being able to ride Yoshi players makes me think that everyone who wants to blow bubbles or be an elephant and get the special power-ups are the ones who need kind of like the attention. And whoever's going to be playing Yoshi is there to just help less experienced players get over pits and get proper time jumps, help solve puzzles look for items, so on. Power-ups start with Elephant Mode uh, before giving you the tried-and-true Fire Flower. I could say a million different mean things about uh, characters turning into elephants, you know, a la a take on real life, Uh, but uh, I'll take the high road on this one. The melee skill of the Elephant, it feels like it's just like the best, most well-rounded attack. Elephant, in general, kind of feels like it's the just pick this one if you have to make a decision on a spinner block. You know, aside from some neat interactions where you can water flowers and grass for coins, it's neat until they start making watering plants a game-necessary mechanic for completion, I guess? When really, uh, deep down, we just all want to murder things. Uh, the third power-up you'll encounter in the game is the bubble flower. In my playthrough, it turned my green Luigi into a, a sensual pink, but honestly, bubble power-up felt like the best power up to compensate for picking other badges like there were so many times where I really enjoyed having an attack that could clip through basically anything on the screen uh, and you can jump on it or bounce off it in succession if you shoot a couple bubbles it was always my first choice but it always felt like it had so many downsides that I couldn't I had to keep both elephant and bubble Last power-up was the Drill Hat, which lets you traverse a roof or ground, you know, being invincible, and attack enemies from below. I feel like it's the nice, safe option, but aside from the stages where it's absolutely necessary to get into areas, I never found myself actually wanting to take it. One of the new mechanics are badges. Is probably the best positive change I could say that has come out for the series. Uh, But I think a bigger difficulty curve might have made them stand out a little more. You get specific activatable ones like turning your hat into a giant parachute, uh, being able to dolphin kick underwater, to punch through blocks and swim against currents. There's the fun timed triple jump. There's the Luigi flutter jump, uh, the boosting spin jump, and honestly more that I can't really think of or probably use during my playthrough. There are ones classified as either boosts or expert badges. Boost can do some awesome things like make every... Power up an elephant or a bubble, mushroom, and so on. You can take a badge that makes you glow or like pulse when you're near completion objectives like flower coins or wonder flowers. Or you can just, you know, take rhythm jump, which gives you coins after a number of successful jumps in rhythm to the background beat. Some are definitely more useful than others, like letting you jump out of bottomless pits uh, and take a step off lava. uh, Or starting in big Mario form. But honestly, I wouldn't take them over the utility of activatable ones. Expert ones are are definitely weird. They probably have more of a completionist aspect to them. Maybe like a speedrunner aspect to them. Maybe self-imposed hard mode. The first one that you get just basically makes you never stop running. You definitely run a lot faster than normal. uh, And it allows you to, I think believe it's continue momentum off edges and stuff. There's one that makes you hop all the time that was super dumb. Uh, And another one that just makes your character invisible in kind of a, well, good luck guessing your way through the stage. uh, Because enemies are supposed to not spot you uh, or track you, you know, unless you touch them or if a uh, game mechanic doesn't want you to be invisible anymore. And the final badge that I was chasing, uh, Sound Off, it does absolutely nothing to benefit you while you play the game. What it does do, though, is replace almost all of the audio effects with some guy doing the sound effects in the background. Uh, he, he doesn't do all the sound effects, which is a little bit weird. Like, he doesn't do the acapella sound effect for stage completion or, like, touching flowers. But w- whatever. I'd say it's unique and clever enough. And unique enough that I think I would probably still push to get it. It's unique enough that I'm still going to try and push and get it. I think it was a missed opportunity opportunity to not let people use at least two badges Uh, i wouldn't have minded using the sound off badge with something else for example Uh, but like i mentioned i used the parachute hat or extra spin jump or the dolphin kick pretty much just all the time for levels with and without water i didn't really find any stage that hard to complete and the most challenging usually being like a second attempt through uh half the time the second attempt through was more for just like missing a coin that you can't backtrack to. Uh, That also includes special worlds, uh, mind you. But I will admit, some of them were pretty fun to play. The Wander Gauntlet, for example, uh, and the final badge marathon stage. Early on, I was definitely making sure that I was going to pick up every single purple coin possible. But by the end, I was basically just having to stop at mushroom vendors all the time and just start sinking money into the... 100-coin wonder seeds or spending, you know, 10 to 30 coins at a time to get the gotcha-specific flags for multiplayer, which not having a single-player aspect was kind of lame. I I guess I'll point this out. Multiplayer is, uh, was, could be, might be a cool thing, but honestly, you'd need to subscribe to Nintendo's online services to make that happen. Which, if you're someone who just kind of like lives and breathes off Super Mario Maker Uh, Splatoon, Mario Kart, etc. Then, like, it's already a sunk cost for you for a bonus feature that you'll probably enjoy. Especially if you need a little bit of help. Uh, But it doesn't really add anything to the game the way uh, Luigi's Balloon Hunt in Odyssey made you physically hate every other person that you interacted with for making ridiculous last millisecond or weird physics jumps and precise challenges to get to platforms. In the end though, if you own a Switch, uh, I don't think I need to tell you that it's kind of like a staple of a game. Like I said, it's all first-party titles. Uh, I subsidized my Switch purchases now with a family member, so while I stand by my comment that I refuse to buy more games on the Switch, there are a couple that are just kind of bound to slip through. Like, oh, I don't know, getting my hands on a copy of physical... Like, getting my hands on a copy of Super Mario RPG on the 17th. Because... I refuse to believe that by buying this and this game selling multi-million dollars that it won't lead to a sequel or, I don't know, give us Geno and Smash. Even Malo and Smash I think I'd be okay with. But I feel like every time you have an opportunity to kind of relive these sorts of crossovers, you have to cherish it. It's kind of like having Mario and Rabbids where you find a lovable odd synergy with it being the Super Mario's spitshine of approval and then the weirdness of taking on something new and odd like a rabbit or a tactical shooter. (laughs) And for a while there, it was like the biggest title that you probably didn't even think would be amazing, but now they kind of just pretend like they don't exist. Both Square Enix and Ubisoft might be softballing in efforts on new titles to get these two back together, but I don't know, can you blame large game companies for focusing on the one thing that matters the most about their games. Profits. The profits are what matters most. And I say that both ironically and unironically because without Siege, (laughs) Ubisoft is probably going to be in dire straits. And Square Enix, you know, I know they will always do good enough to stay afloat, uh, but early announcements that Final Fantasy 16 was the fastest selling title on the PlayStation 5, or I think it was even PlayStation History or something, was highly toted. And then it quickly turned around and said that Final Fantasy XVI was definitely very underwhelming for what they had their expectations for. It's definitely strange because I think the whole derailment of going from the original Final Fantasy series into this uh, new era, new genre, I don't think it does the Final Fantasy brand any favors, aside from maybe stupids who need two words together to know whether or not they should buy a game. I don't even know if I'm going to buy it, like I'll probably buy it when it's ported to PC and we get Game of the Crown edition at, you know, 50% off sale price. But it really is the spirit of its predecessors that kind of keeps me interested in this game. It's like if Metal Gear Rising was called Metal Gear Solid 5, or I don't know, Metal Gear Solid Survive was suddenly Metal Gear Solid 6, or I don't know, they turned it into like a Monster Hunter genre. I really think that they're doing themselves a disservice by steamrolling over their history, uh, and really I think it's bad form. On JRPGs, JRPGs is a bit of a sensitive topic in Japan. I feel like you have to take both the good and the bad with the connotation. You know, I, I really think that the po- biggest positive I could give is that a lot of JRPGs are fantasy engaged stories that never seem to come up that often in Western developers' palettes. But JRPGs also have this problem where their stories want to intrigue you and push into, like, the mystery, but move towards people asking, hey, did the person who was assembling the storyboard have, like, a stroke or something? Like, what's going on with this plot? Final Fantasy XV being, like, they made a game way too grand for what it needed to be, and you had to watch a movie and a mini series and then play the game, and even then it just jumped around and it was so weird. Not saying, like, the older series wasn't perfect. Like, even my beloved Final Fantasy VII has, you know, moments where Disc disc 1 was kind of like a continuity piece of genius, making me feel like, give me more, give me more. Uh, And then suddenly you're in a wheelchair uh, falling into the center of the earth just to have a flashback and then everything's all right. And you kind of have to stop and say, uh, what? Now that I think about it, I feel like Final Fantasy IX was kind of like the the redemption to getting a proper JRPG story arc and not be complete batshit crazy. But, you know, and then Final Fantasy X was like, you know what? I like being insane. Bring on Final Fantasy X2. Ugh, Final Fantasy X2. The game that's like, what even... Why do I even care about stories? Look, these are girls. They can change into costumes. And they also play in a band. I think that game has a special place in a lot of people's hearts because... While the multi-classing was kind of fun, I, I, I never beat it, and I've tried so many times to go back and beat it, it just kind of diluted the experience for me. Wow, off-topic rants aside, I guess we can start talking about other games if you didn't already get the TLDR, yes, go out and buy Super Mario Wonder. Uh, I beat Sea of Stars finally, uh, I, I put a big asterisk in that, because I didn't fully upgrade my town uh, find every shell or do the extra after story content when you beat i guess if i'm gonna say spoiler now and give you a couple seconds to plug your ears uh is it's the fight after alina that uh, after i fought alina i didn't bother go going to fight the uh the Fleshermancer once you fully realize that he is yes the big bad that you should have been chasing all along uh, and honestly, I spent more time just looking into seeing what I had to do to get Garl back, and then you lose. You have to, and then you realize you have to lose uh, whatever Bist. Uh, and honestly, in the end, I felt like I was mostly done with the game. Its completionist uh, big asterisk, content didn't replace my desire to get as much time in on Baldur's Gate 3 or beat Super Mario Wonder. Uh, overall, I don't regret making this a title that I quote unquote finished in 2023 at the moment it's kind of a very short list. Well, I guess I got through a fair bit, but I feel like this was the first time that I enjoyed myself, so I consider it time well spent for going back into a casual 90s JRPG faithful title. That game did have kind of a neat plot arc, uh, which you kind of have to turn your brain off sometimes and just enjoy, because the plot arc also felt like it unpacked a lot of info into certain areas and then just moved on from it Maybe too quickly. But some people just don't make sense for their motivations, like... Brugraves Graves uh, going evil because, I don't know, he's tired of being a hero. Like, 30% of the way through the game, when you start to get all the hero's powers and the ability to pick resources... ...easily in, like, your own town, the tal- the challenge of the game really just disappeared. Overall... I don't know. I don't really even know if I want to give it, like, an eh or a meh. But, like, it's a solid... 7. I don't know if it's gonna be my indie game of the year but I think it's innovative enough that it probably ticks enough boxes. It really got tiring uh, rotating in the same three skills, plus a rainy day savings of combo points for big fights. Nostalgia and kind of casual play kept me going, but I think that was enough for me. Uh, Between the month and a half that I was off, the uh, indie demo fest was back on on Steam, and I had a chance to play uh, a vampire survivor-like called Deep Rock Galactic Survivor only because my brain was not functioning, and I mistakenly thought it was Deep Rock Galactic Rogue Core, which is a multiplayer survival game, and also a roguelike. But I guess it has more core gameplay relatable to the original Deep Rock Galactic, and because it has more core gameplay, I guess it could be called a Rogue-like Core Deep Rock Galactic. Yes, I know. Uh, it's unironically that I realized this during writing, and no, I will not stop digging my grave any deeper. It has a Q1 2024 release window, but I feel with a, maybe a little bit of tinkering, it'll be a solid $8 to $15 fodder, or maybe a questionable $30 release. I like the uh, the grouping of upgrades for the scout. It's initial variety of demo guns. Being able to focus on visible waves and extraction, not just spend endlessly for 20 minutes like every other game. Uh, I do like the fact that you get rewarded for mining and the fact that you can shop upgrades between stages, Uh, and I'm really excited to see more upgrades, all classes, and gun variety. I do kind of want to see a little more depth to the guns to maybe warrant a higher sticker price if they go that way, but since the game has no listed MSRP, let's hope, or I guess pray, is pretend it's going to be headed towards the 10 to $20 bin. Surprising no one, uh, Konami gave everyone an official way to play Metal Gear Solid on the PC, but uh, mostly everyone is just rightfully saying this is a downgrade in every alternative way that there is to play this. Because I sat down and watched the Digital Foundry's tech review of Metal Gear Solid's Master Collection to my own kind of self-serving and Smug satisfaction of how a company can screw up emulating titles when proper emulation already exists. I realize it's m- most literally just the PC port of what is it, the original Vita and PlayStation 3 HD collection. I guess it was also on the Xbox 360. And the entire world is jumping to this conclusion. Uh, as they EA sported themselves a couple times, having the logo for the HD collection just show up on splash loading screens and respective comparisons being disappointingly showing, they literally just upscaled 720p to 1080p instead of giving us a 1080p native experience. Digital Foundries also showed what you could have had had you just pirated Metal Gear Solid 1 like the internet wanted you to, uh, and upscale textures to 4K on Duck Station. Or, you know, the one kind of weird avenue that Digital Foundries showed was they applied a 4K texture mob to Snake Eater. And I guess that's probably the one nice thing, having an avenue to kind of open up the game to higher texture mods is definitely an unintended reason to buy the game. Honestly, it probably looks like how many would have hoped the Master Collection would have worked, but they really half asked this one, despite the games being fully functional. Let's just kick the switch while it's down. Optimization is a word that should never be uttered uh, with its frame stutter, its weird drops, and even weirder 30 FPS to 60 FPS spikes when you stand in lockers. But I don't know, I guess it's serviceable. But I think the real icing on the cake of the Digital Foundry's review was literally running the Xbox 360 HD Collection comparison on the Xbox Series X to the Master Collection You'd think it would at least be a little bit comparable, but it's actually a decrease in visual quality. There was tons of like odd texture blurring, weird anti-alias problems, and weird polygonal floor textures being weird altogether. The one nice thing that maybe could be said about it is PS5 owners probably got the best rendition out of all of them, as it seems to be the best out-of-the-box experience for the least jank experience. Uh, one redeeming factor is all the extras that you might get on PC are actually kind of nice if you're really wanting more lore like have you ever wanted to experience a visual novel retelling of Metal Gear Solid I honestly didn't even think I'd want that until I saw that I could have it although you think about the form and kind of like the value that it brings and then you kind of realize that it's probably just going to end up as a video on YouTube anyway so why pay for it in advance All we can do now is kind of go down the dark alley and kind of wonder how Konami is screwing Kojima out of royalties on this game. So let's just all band together now and say, Kojima, please make a different stealth espionage game. We can rebirth the series and call it, I don't know, Alloy Cogs Solid, starring espionage, debonair, uh, solid dong. (laughs) Moving on. Uh, so I've, I've had a chance to kind of sit through and look at all the Legion Go reviews and kind of like the onslaught of hate that initial launch software has and kind of performance that doesn't match up to the other units. And uh, it's kind of weird. I mean, retail units are in the hands of the masses, as expected. Uh, you know, Best Buy units going to Best Buy units. Honestly, just looking at the comparisons, it is a bit mixed, but it just seems like it's handling like all the other 7840U devices that has faster memory and a bigger screen uh it with it does it does have some weird variations between reviewers canada was off to a uh, rocky start because some users were complaining that they didn't get u.s treatment uh while the u.s was getting units delivered to their door like day of uh canadian users were having to wait you know like a business week over some sort of like shipping or delay preventing october 31st delivery uh And it's all over the place. Everyone has their takes on, like, power profiles. Lenovo is no different. But you can tell they have some wiggle room and some feedback to start looking at in order to make this better than the ROG Ally. Uh, Just judging by the Fox's reviews, because he usually does the most in-depth performance comparisons, he showed the Ally and the Legion Go were fairly on par with each other until you started getting past that 20-watt TDP. And then, you know probably the higher clocked RAM kicks in and that power really lets the GPU stretch its legs a bit. It's a little bit towards the opposite as it feels like it's not properly optimized for lower TDPs, but it's still too early to say anything that's definite. It is a little bit interesting to see that Lenovo had downs for whatever profile you wanted to use instead of the typical Asus handcuffing you to whatever its genius maneuver it wants to do. Uh, in terms of the console itself, the Fox also showed... Kind of the first negative impressions of vertical mouse playing. I think also uh, retro game core, but I think those because, man, predominantly left-handed video game players are just never going to have a good time. The one thing that I, was kind of like a key takeaway that I didn't think I would like as much, but I think might appeal to a lot more people, is he literally just took off the controllers and held it like a tablet. It sounds like the most ridiculous thing, but it is probably the thing to look forward to If you want an incognito gaming device. I mean, I think a lot of people just might want that in a handheld. Nobody at this point is a fan of the Legion software. I don't even think people are a fan of Asus's software. So let's just agree with the internet that everyone needs to stop it. Even on my ally, and even with like the the Win 4, aside from my respective software for screwing around power profiles, I am a touchscreen user. Like I don't touch launchers. I don't touch anything. And honestly, I think it's better that way. There's nothing to, like, learn, to tweak, or critique. Just being stuck working. I did try to look for a lot more info and maybe feedback. Besides the Fox's videos, uh, there's a guy who covers the uh, Ally, the Steam Deck, uh, and I guess now The Go, who had a really, really good uh, in-depth review of his, like, oddly defective unit. So I definitely recommend checking out Filterless. And then, like, I started to check through Reddit. Uh, and instead, saw the onslaught of problems, uh, alongside the "Hey, look at my shiny object, please validate me, bro," posts, and uh, the uh, a very nice little you know, moderator shit post uh, calling for a ceasefire across subreddits. But really, some of the other like release day videos were fairly clickbait, and I was a little bit disappointed uh, by kind of like the people who cover mainly the Steam Deck. Uh, and the ROG ally really well. There's a lot of people who are talking about like this device changes everything and it really doesn't change anything aside from maybe having a third completely different option that checks off different boxes in the deck and the ally. There are some things that I think, I'm at least hoping, that come out of the box that make it into other handhelds like auto performance mode on the Legion Go, which seems to have some sort of like similarities to auto tdp which honestly just to have that automatic and have no processor overshoot rather than having cypher Bat go through like third-party software and setting up and going through some guide that permanently like locks you into those kind of like handcuffing constraints definitely to me gives lenovo a bit of an edge especially if you just want the vanilla experience and not have to tinker with all kinds of different software at at some point, I hope everyone is just like starting in their own direction, but then slowly start cheating off each other, and we start getting the best aspects of all devices eventually. But honestly, another shaky launch is what the market needs for bigger players trying to step into the handheld market. You know, I think as we further, I think as we get farther into the release of the these devices, companies like the INEO Neo and maybe like GPDs like Win Four might have looked a lot less worthwhile but sometimes you really rely on like the mature players uh, who just struggle to have access to hardware to see where they really fall flat I don't even know what to call it, I, I have injection molds written down here but I know that's probably not the right thing to call it, um, but it's what you would use to get like the perfect controller ergonomics and like solid feel to it, whatever whatever it really takes to have all the talent make it work for it in the end, we're still dealing with an APU. Really, we just don't want to have a, you know, an, an underperforming GPU and a poorly managed CPU. I feel like I could ramble for hours about how it feels so weird that these devices will sometimes just have the CPU spin its wheels and go all the way up past boost and starve out the GPU. Uh, for example, Witcher, whatever 3.5, whatever the overhaul is called you know, at a 25 watt profile, it felt like my CPU was just looking busy. So no one would notice uh, it was on YouTube all day because you can run things like auto TDP and it cut my power usage down and it cut my power usage down below 15 Watts while it was getting settled. Uh, it did introduce a slight bit of stutter, uh, while it was finding whatever the right frequencies, uh, but then, realistically, I was playing with a over two hour battery profile instead of a seventy five minute profile. I've had my two devices for a while, and I'm still kind of undecided. Honestly, if you took the VRR out of the equation, both devices are just forty five to sixty FPS gaming devices, anyways. New AAA games kind of live and breathe off uh, FSR. I think there are examples of how like a sixteen hundred P screen could be a benefit. Uh, especially if you start playing some of these lower power, lower requirement games. But, I mean, besides it being a portrait panel, there's honestly no downside to getting a gorgeous larger screen uh, or dedicated mouse buttons like the Legion Go has. But it's already starting to see big dips in when it comes to open boxes, so I think it's going to follow suit with the ROG Ally. Maybe it might not go as steep of dips as the ROG Ally, because, I mean, right now you can get open box units for $650 Canadian, which is definitely below $500 US. And at $650, you're going to have to compete with the brand new, announced uh, OLED, the OLED Steam Deck, which, oh, I think it's making some heads turn for getting the best quality of life features while still being constrained by the chipset that they have. If you haven't seen, uh, there's a whole bunch of changes that I won't go too much into. Uh, they had a die shrink. The, they increased the size of the battery. They moved the main board around. They gave it a bigger heatsink and fan. I think they did so much, and like they increased the the speed of the RAM. So I think like across the board, it had something crazy, like a, you know, like a five to seven percent uh, performance increase at the higher TDPs because it's more managed and less like overshooting its power profile. Like maybe it has the juggle down a little bit better, uh, but it'll be really interesting to see once people start getting their hands on units, which I believe people are going to be able to pre-buy on the 16th. I guess I didn't state it's the 15th of the time I'm recording, and I'm just trying to squeeze in some time here to get through this, so bear with me. The Steam Deck is still the budget master. If you look, and honestly, if you can get your hands on a refurbished 64 gigabyte unit, I think that's probably, like, the best value that you'll ever get out of a handheld device. Because now you're starting to push into, like, the uh, the Retroid Pocket 3 Plus territory. I realize that's probably, like, an extra 100 Canadian to compare the two, but I think one is much better than the other, from a value standpoint anyways. It's still getting me to the point where I wouldn't go out and buy it, although that limited edition does look really nice. Games are just coming out in an unapproachable state, for the Steam Deck. I think Valve made its mark with the Steam Deck. Uh, we definitely weren't expecting a, a re-release in 2023, but they're definitely playing the cards right by getting this out before Black Friday, and especially before the Christmas holiday. And it's just such a solid device that it's just like, I can't wait to see the the, the next rendition, Like, where they get a proper chipset in that handheld. But like for now, I would just love to settle for booting into SteamOS on my GPD Win 4, without the hassle of actually having to learn Linux uh, or pick up whatever Chimera OS or any of that nonsense. Game mode is SteamOS to me, and the desktop being a back end is just is just a plus. Windows needs to get the shit together and make an Xbox game mode uh, and have Windows on the back end. So let's talk about games coming out in November. Uh, Let's talk about high notes. Uh, Let's just get this out of the way. Super Mario RPG remake is coming out on the 17th, and this was the... Okay, well, maybe I'll just buy one more Switch game, but that's it. Wait, stop. Why are you shaking your head at me in disgust? I'm not going to lie. I'm going to predict that this is going to sell gangbusters only because you're going to have, what is it, three decades? So an entire generation of families are going to both want to play this and then give it to their children or just have a general interest because it's a Mario game, and Nintendo is going to use these funds instead to revive another sports game or introduce, like, Super Mario Pickleball or, who knows, Mario. Hey, why don't we learn to type or some garbage? I'm not going to hold my breath that we're going to get another Super Mario RPG because it's not like, I don't know, turn-based RPGs were suddenly selling proper It's not like you can release a game like Sea of Stars that just did alright and in the first week sell 250,000 copies. It's the one series I wish would de-evolve and go back to just normal. Uh, Like a dragon, Gaiden, the man who erased his name is coming to Game Pass uh, in an announcement by Xbox. Actually, I think I already have this installing. Uh, Sega straight up just said it was supposed to be a DLC, uh, but it's now its own standalone short, but it's like uh, Kiryu... ...beating up people instead of Katsuga... ...but hey, if it has enough content to stand alone... ...you know, why not let Sega do what it's gotta do? Uh, Persona 5 Tactica is hitting Game Pass... ...on launch this month... uh, ...probably at the same time as like a Dragon Gaiden... Uh, ...it's another game I'm looking forward to play... Uh, ...it's probably gonna be the first game that I haven't played... ...in a while... ...new Persona game that isn't just like... ...crappy dancing rhythm... ...boy was I baited by that when I started looking at other titles... I don't think slower tactics based games normally sell like gangbusters, uh, but just kind of like the theme and the depth of the gameplay that I saw so far, uh, it just kind of looks great. And I'm lucky that we're getting this on Xbox Game Pass. Uh, other games that are coming to Game Pass, just because I'm, since I'm just ranting about Game Pass, uh, the games for November are Dungeons 4, uh, War Tales, and Wild Hearts. Dungeons 3 was a pretty fun co-op game if anti-hero dungeon games are your jam. Uh, I do want to kind of like meddle around in Wild Hearts, even though it didn't seem like it had the best initial impressions. Uh, But also, War Tales has been out for half a year now, and I was actually hoping to get this on launch or a Humble Pass. So being able to spin this up and give it a shot is actually pretty great. last game that I want to mention uh, is Gangs of Sherwood. Uh, I played the demo during Indie Demo Fest. It's a pretty cool arcadey adventure game more in line with Robin Hood if Robin Hood was influenced by Vermintide influence and I mean like if Vermintide influenced the days of yore and everyone was in like a magical castle or something. The demo was fun and it played pretty well. Uh, it has a nice feel on both controller and mouse and keyboard uh, while I was playing Robin of Loxley, anyways who is more of a ranged focus bow user. Uh, I felt like I was mashing in kind of a, a low depth procedurally gendered generated pathways and battle rooms. But it's literally just like Vermintide. You get gold from story missions. You also build up fame for completing those missions. Uh, You procedurally unlock skills and abilities as you progress through the story with your character. On the demo in normal difficulty, I felt like I was just mashing the same combo over and over again uh, or left clicking while just dodging or backpedaling. So I could just so it wasn't too difficult, and I kind of wonder how the appeal of combat will stay fresh. Uh, but I'll keep it on my radar. I can't tell if the studio was like bought out or switched games as appeal studios. The last game was a DLC for Outcast, Second Contact, and Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. It seems like a big jump from Who Wants to Be a Millionaire to this game, but hey. Gangs of Sherwood would probably be a better spiritual successor to Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Uh, the game is releasing at $40 US or $52 Canadian. But judging from this gameplay and the solo experience, I imagine that there's going to be quite a few people wanting to wait for a sale. Or maybe they're going to do something smart like get some four packs rolling at a pretty hefty discount. Uh, just so that you can have some actual fun. Or I don't know. Have it show a little more progression than just whatever you can get with skill on that. But that's it. This is the catch-up episode. Thanks for listening and just generally coming back. I'm getting close to finishing Baldur's Gate 3 so that I can pout about games that don't compare to it anymore. Uh, But thanks again for listening. Uh, I had to rebuild all of my assets uh, and set up for the podcast uh, just kind of midway through October. Uh, I misdiagnosed failing RAM as a corrupt Windows installation. Uh, And it really, really, really sucks to think that you have everything safe and backed up on non-operating system drives, uh, and then you kind of forget that everything involving the settings and all other kinds of weird stuff is, is held hostage in my documents. But we'll see how this comes out, and who knows? There's always room for improvement. We always gotta push a little further. But thanks again. This is Game in Hand. I don't think you're gonna have to wait too long for a new episode. I think we're gonna go back to our regular close to month end maybe first couple days of the the month just to make sure that we're capturing i don't know super mario rpg if i had to put a crystal ball up to the monitor my name is dan thanks for tuning in and i hope to see you next time bye for now